theyeshiva.net. We began in last year, the Maimer of Al Hanisim, Valapurkan, Valagvuris of Tovshin Chavtes, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and we're up to Sivbe's, the second paragraph, the second section. The focus of our class was that when our sages instituted Hanukkah and they wrote the prayers for Hanukkah, they described the miracle of Hanukkah as one of When the Assyrian Greeks stood up against the Jewish people and they compelled them to forget your Torah and to violate the laws of your will. And the Rebbe dissects those words. Why did it say Lashkicham Torah Secha and not Lashkicham Hatayra? To make them forget Torah. The Chazal said no, to make them forget your Torah. The same is true in the next description. It should have said Ulahavira Meha Mitzvah to make them violate the Mitzvah. In fact, if you read the history of Hanukkah, you have it in Sefer HaMakabim, the book of the Maccabees, and other places where the Hanukkah story is recorded. There were many mitzvahs that were outlawed and that the Jews were forced to violate. Could have said, La'avirama mitzvahs. But he says, no, La'ashkicham teresecha u'la'avirama chukeiritzaynecha. So the Rebbe explains. He bases this on a mimer of his father-in-law, the Rebbe Rayatz, and then develops it further. That the Yivanim, actually, the Greeks, many of them, if we talk about Greek culture and Greek philosophy, many of them were great intellectuals. Which is why Hellenism was so attractive and appealing for so many Jews. Because this was not just a group of barbarians, even though, especially looking back today at some of their practices, they were quite barbaric. But relative to the ancient pagan world, the Hellenist, Hellenistic culture came with the promise of progress and enlightenment and a tremendous focus on philosophy, on the human mind. The human mind was seen as the great zenith of existence. They worshipped the great athlete, the perfect, beautiful, aesthetical physique and body, and the great mind, the great philosopher. The body and the mind this had something to it. It has something to it. Aesthetics, yoifi, beauty. You know what the Magala Amukas writes? Fascinating thing. He says that Yosef, Yosef is begamatri Antiochus. The numerical value of Yosef is the same like Antiochus and is the same like Melech Yovan, the king of Greece. Because they, you'll soon see the context, because they claim that Yosef Kevayachal was the first Hellenist Jew. Learn from Yosef. He was integrated. He wasn't a old shtetl de kahit. He was a, he wasn't a parochial, isolated man in a cocoon. He was a Renaissance man. He spoke Egyptian. He ran the economy of Egypt. He dressed Egyptian in Egyptian garb. Learn from, learn from Joseph. Antiochus and Melech Yavon. The word Yavon is the same letters like, Yavon is Greece, but the same letters like Noi, beauty. Nun vav yud, beauty. The focus was, on aesthetical beauty, and on intellectual beauty. Remember that the Greeks produced, before Hanukkah, some of the greatest philosophers that would inform humanity for thousands of years. Socrates, 
Socrates' student, Plato, Plato's student, Aristotle, who was a tutor of Alexander the Great as a child. And this is years before Hanukkah. Remember that Greece would create beautiful architecture, art, history. They were the writers of history. Plays, tragedies, literature, Homer, etc. And this was very appealing to many Jews because Jews had a great culture and a focus on the finer elements of life. So this was very promising. It was enthralling. It was really a lethal attack against Judaism. I once read an article in the New York Times about Hanukkah, and the writer says, he said, I don't know why they celebrate Hanukkah. It was the victory of primitive fundamentalists against Greek enlightenment. <laughs> he says, what's the victory of Hanukkah? Why is it a celebration? He says, they were primitive zealots, and they were fighting Greek enlightenment. When I was reading it, it was not easy to digest. I don't know what Greek enlightenment is when you're torturing mothers. They would take mothers who had babies and gave them a bris and kill the mother with the baby. I'm not going to describe how they killed them. I don't know what's so enlightened about that. What's so enlightening about torturing Jews? And what's so enlightening about murdering a mother and her seven children because they refuse to bow down to your idol? So if that's enlightenment... God protect us from enlightenment. <laughs> I'm laughing, it's not so funny. You know, it's, there were elements that were very appealing, but certain elements in, in, in Greek culture and ethics, it's not the subject of today's class, but you can read about it, were grotesque beyond. And we owe it to the Judaic values that the West has uh, emancipated itself from those behaviors, including including that if a child is born and physically imperfect, you let him die, including the fact that elderly, the moment you decide that they're not useful, you leave them somewhere and you let them die. Uh, pedophilia. Aristotle writes that pedophilia is a wonderful thing. <laughs> so he says, so it's important to put that in focus, you know, not to start romanticizing uh, uh, Greek culture, and Spartan life, etc. But, there was a tremendous focus on intellect. Tremendous. And therefore, the Rebbe says, Taita? They don't have a problem with Taita. Why can't our university have a department of Judaic myths, or Judaic faith, or Taita? They're fine. They translated it into Greek. The Septuagint. Taita itself, as an intellectual experiment as an intellectual exercise? Wonderful! And if you even write a doctorate on it, we'll publicize it. Maybe you'll even get the Nobel Prize. Even mitzvahs, he says. Many of the mitzvahs are rational. They would agree with the mitzvahs. Not all of them, but many of them are rational. He says, you have the mishpatim, you have the edis, the testimonials. Also rational. That's why it says, lavirim what bothered them were the chukim, the super-rational mitzvahs. Those that don't fit in to the structure of the human mind. What bothered them is the absoluteness of Taita. The Taita is divine wisdom. The Taita is the, is the will of the creator of the world, the one who originates all of the wisdom. The alakus of Taita. What bothered them were the chukim. What bothered them was Taita Secha.
They have no problem with Torah as an intellectual exercise, some brilliant ideas. I'm fine with that. Then the Rebbe says it's even deeper. If this was it, they should have wrote, the Chazal should have wrote, to make them violate. So the Rebbe has a gewaldic idiyuk here. Such a beautiful insight. I don't know if the word beautiful is really, uh, uh, works here because of the context. The Yavonim, or at least the inner Greek, can agree with Chukim as well. They can embrace Chukim as well. Why? Because they can understand that some things are beyond my intellect today. Only a fool will say that I know everything. Fine, maybe I don't understand it. There's a reason. I just don't understand it. I'll understand it tomorrow. In other words, people can appreciate, great intellectuals can appreciate the fact that they don't know everything. Even if they they believe that intellect is finite, is infinite. In other words, that everything is logic. Fine. But my logic is certainly limited. I still have places to grow. So therefore, in principle, I can accept chukim as long as we'll investigate this and we'll try to figure out the reason. But it has to be, be, be based on a premise of reason. So therefore, even the Greek inside of me could say, you know what? I'm an intellectual and I can understand that there are things that I still don't understand yet. And therefore I'll accept it. I'll accept the chayk also. Either chayk is super rational. It's super rational today. But we'll figure out the reason. Somewhere there must be a reason. I mean, you guys are not stupid. You guys are not crazy, right? So I want to understand the intelligence of it. Maybe not today. Okay, I'll do it in a year and I'll accept it now. Furthermore, that's even if you believe that everything is logic. Everything is logic, but I don't have all the logic. I don't have all the data. Newton believed that if you give him all the data in the world, he could predict everything. But we don't have access to all the data. So I have to accept certain things. Okay. But I can debate them tomorrow when I figure out that your premises were erroneous. Furthermore, an intelligent person even grasps that logic itself is not everything. Logic itself requires certain premises that are illogical in order for logic to justify. So he says, okay, I'll give in to that. That they will agree. What bothered them was, The reason I do a chayke is not because of seichel, but because of its rotsen, because it's God's inner intimate will. As long as you give me intelligent justification from a rational perspective, I'll agree to Torah and I'll agree to chukim. Of course, I'll agree to Mishpatim and Edis. What's bothering me is Torah Secha. What's bothering me is Chukei Ritzay Necha. Not just Chukim, Ritzay Necha. That it's because of your Ratzim. Completely transcending Seichel infinitely. Not just, it transcends my Seichel today, or we need some foundation to have to give Seichel context. You need to do some premises. But that it's a relationship with something that it completely transcends logic and intellect. And as I explained, it's not that logic and intellect don't exist. Torah and mitzvahs are the source of rationality and logic. And many of them, most of it, is garbed and enclosed in logic. But those are the facades, those are the garments, those are the levushim. It's not the essence, it's not the core. They wanted to take away from the Jews, stop saying that it's Torah secha. Learn Torah, it's intellectually brilliant. And you can be dazzled by its brilliance and get stuck in its analysis. And, and the truth is, it's Chachmas Hashem. You're learning Torah. But as long as I'm only learning Torah and I'm 
completely consumed by its brilliance and its intricacy. And that's where I remain. That's it. That's where I remain. Then what happens? Then I have not emancipated myself from the Greek influence inside of me. I remain a victim to the Yavoni. I remain a victim to the Yavoni from the word Noi. Yavon Noi, the beauty. The etzim of Torah, the etzim of Torah, Torah Secha, that it's yours. It's divine. So somebody asked yesterday on the, in the comments, so why are there so many reasons for mitzvahs? And the Rambam also says, if you can give a reason, give a reason. And the Rambam has a sefer Meri Nevuchim. And in the third section, he tries to explain most of the mitzvahs. And throughout the world, throughout history, many Svartim explain the rationale behind so many mitzvahs. Till this very day. And we do it in many classes. So the Balatanya writes about this in Tanya Neger Sakaider, section 29. He says, of course there are many mitzvahs for reasons. But that's not the essence of the mitzvah. The essence of the mitzvah is that it's Ratzin Hashem, it's the will of Hashem that transcends any structure of intellect or logic because logic itself was created by the divine. And therefore the God himself transcends logic infinitely. However, afterwards Hashem chose that many mitzvahs should assume the garb of intellect, but the intellectual justification of the mitzvahs, and even the intellectual dimension of Torah is a garb, it's a levush, in which the core of Torah and mitzvahs are dressed up. And what is the core? The core is the essence of Hashem, which is not defined by logic. And I gave the long metaphor about marriage and relationships that you could listen to in last class, I think it could be helpful. When somebody says, I'm going to have a relationship with you, but the relationship is based on what I understand. I have to understand everything explained. My dear wife, my dear husband, explain it to me logically, and then I can have a relationship, and then I can accept it. And even when I go to therapy and I mature and I say, okay, I'll do what you want, but I want to really understand why. Well, you did not hit the spot, you did not hit the jackpot, you're not getting the point. That's why the Gemara says, the Medrash says, Hashem says, I have engraved these laws, you do not have permission to think after them. So literally, the world says, what's pshad means is, you're not allowed to think about it. The Rebbe says, no, you're not allowed to think after it. What does it mean? It's not talking about somebody who says, I'll think about it. If I understand it, I'll do it. No, somebody who says, I'll do it anyway. But I want to understand it. And he says, you missed the point. You'll do it. But you want to understand it. You're not getting the point. You're stuck in the philosophy of Yavah. You're stuck in the idea of understanding. Let it appeal to my logic. You don't have a relationship with the core energy that transcends Seichel. And this was the opposition of the Yavonu. So the Balatanya says there in Tanya, even when the mitzvahs enclose themselves in a reason, don't define it as a reason. And that's what there's an argument about mitzvah. Rabbi Shimon and the Chachamim of Darish Tamadikra, Loi Darish Tamadikra. When there's a mitzvah, can we expound on the reason and make halachas based on the reason? So many of the sages say no. The Torah doesn't give a reason, leave it as is, and don't start applying the reason and then deducing from that new laws. Rabbi Shimon says, Darish Taimadikra. You can expound the reason of the Pasuk. And even when there is a reason, and even when the reason the Torah gives explicitly, even when the, what's the argument? This is the argument. According to one view, Loi Darish Taimadikra, because the essence of the mitzvah is not based on reason. Rabbi Shimon says, no, that the, the Hashem's will is garbed and assumes a reason. Even then it's not the essence. And even when Torah gives us a reason, or other Svarim give us a reason, Svarim of Torah, the Alter Rebbe says that's not the ultimate reason. It's a certain aspect of the rationale that was revealed to us. Even in the world of reason itself, there are layers and layers and layers and layers. And it's really a reflection of the human soul, because Nasa Adam Betzalmeinu Kid 
that there are reasons for many things we do in our lives. There are logical reasons. But to say that that is the core of it, that's not the core of it, as discussed yesterday. And even that which we understand is only one layer of reason. There's deeper and deeper and deeper. Then there's a place where you transcend it completely. He continues in the Maimer, my father-in-law, the Rebbe. In the Maimer, he began discussing There is an intriguing Medrash Rab in the beginning of Torah that the Greeks told the Jewish people, I want, we want you to write down on the horn of an ox that you don't have a part in the God of Israel. In fact, when the sages want to describe the darkness that befell the Jewish people through the Yuvanim, through the Greeks, this is their description. What did they do? They told the Jews, write down on the horn of Anax that you don't have a part in the God of Israel. As he says in footnote 11, this is discussed in Medrash Rabbah Bereish's Parsha Beis, right in the first post, the second Pesach, so the Medrash says there's Soyu, there's Vayu, and then there's Choyshech. You have the Golos of Egypt and the Gullus of Bavel, and you have the, the Gullus of, uh, the Gullus of, uh, of Bavel, Babylonia, and then you have the Gullus of Persia, Achashverish, and then you have Vechoshech Alpnei Sahoim, Vechoshech, this is Yavon, the Yavonim, the Greeks, they brought darkness, because they told the Jews, Kisvulachem, we want you to write this on the horn of Anak. So you have it in Bereshit Salah, Parsha Beis, Parsha Design, Parsha Mandalot. Vetzarich Lohav, and Ma'awad, Kisvulachem, Al-Karin Asher Dafka. Why did they say write it on the horn of an ox? Why not write it on papyrus? Why not write it on parchment? Why not write it on the bark? Why not write it on other substances? Why did they say write it on the horn of an ox? It's a very strange expression. The horn of an ox. The commentators struggle with this. Some even want to go so far as saying that the horn of an ox was sometimes used as a baby bottle. Like we have today a baby bottle. They used to use the horn of an ox. So in other words, it was a very common instrument that was used in homes. So they said, write it on the horn of an ox. In other words, we want you to engrave this everywhere, even on the bottles that your babies use to drink, that you that you give your babies to drink with. That's how much we want this notion, this new ethos to be engraved in your lives. Write down on the baby bottles that you don't have a part, God forbid, in the Eleke Yisrael and Hashem. But it's a very, it's an interesting interpretation, but it's somewhat difficult to say that's what the sages mean. It sounds like somehow the Yavonim had something with the horn of an ox. What did they have with the horn of an ox? We also have to understand now what's the connection of writing on the horn of an ox that you don't have a part in God of Israel to the idea that we say in Alanism what they wanted is they wanted to make the Jews forget your Torah and to violate the laws of your will. And as we said, the focus is not just Chukim. Chukim can also have a basis in Seichel. The focus is the Ratzon. They couldn't get their brains around the fact that Torah Mitzvah is Ratzon beyond Seichel. The Torah Mitzvah is pure infinity of Elikus. Ain't safe. And that even the intellect of Torah, that's not the core of Torah. It's the garb of Torah. The core of Torah is infinity. And there's, there's two ways of learning Torah. There's learning Torah that even when I'm learning and studying and analyzing the intellect and the pilpulim and the chkiris and the gdorim and the chalois and the mahalach and the shnit and the gavra and the chefts and the shnei dinim and the poil and the pool and the nifl and the teitzah and the mohus and the gedr. It's all there. And you want to rack your brain and use your brain and analyze with your brain and be teufus and grasp it and chap it and develop it. And that's a lavush for Ein It's a conduit for the infinity of Elikus. And when you learn Chassidus, 
constantly. You see this. You see every sugya in Gemara, every mitzvah, every halacha, every halacha in Rambam, every mahalach in Rashi, in Toysvah, in Rashi, Beritva, Ramban, Rishonim, Achronim. There's so much seichel there. There's so many intellectual paradigms and intellectual processes. And, and it's, it's powerful, it's profound, it's brilliant, and it's, it's infinite in its brilliance. But you see that every nikud, every idea, is really a conduit, it's a lavush, for ein seif, for pure infinity, which is beyond seichel. The same is true with mitzvahs. Even when the mitzvahs have a beautiful explanation, and they're enriching, and they're satisfying, and they're gratifying, the nikud of the mitzvah is rotsam. What's the connection between that and riding on the horn of an ox? That you don't have a chelik in Alekei The explanation is based on what the Balatanya says in Torah Eir in Chanukah. And more at length in the Sefer Eir HaTorah, which is the Mamarim of the Tzamach Tzadik, the grandson of the Balatanya. In the chariot of Yecheskel, Yecheskel Anovi chapter 1 sees a chariot and he sees the face of the lion on the right. He sees the face of the eagle, the face of man. On the left, he sees the face of an ox. Pnei shor mehasma. Says the Balatanya and the Tzamach Tzadik that when we spoke about, when we speak about the Greeks, we have to understand that the consciousness that exists often within the nations of the world and within the aspect of the nations that can be in the Jew, receives its energy from the face of the ox. But what do we mean the face of the ox? Which aspect of the ox? The karen, the horns. Because the horns represents the external aspect of the ox itself. We find in Meseches Chulin, a Mishnah in Chulin, Zayin, Amad Beis, Explained in Rashi and Taisvis and Rambam Hilchis Tumas Eichlin, as he says in the footnote fourteen, Le'inyan Kabbalas Tuma. When it comes to the halachas of being susceptible of receiving impurity, the relationship of the horns and the hooves to the very substance to the meat of the animal is less even than the hide. And what he's referring to probably is doesn't say clearly which halach he's referring to. But probably he's referring to the halacha. We know that for for food to impart impurity, if a food is impure, this was extremely relevant in the time of the Beis Hamikdash. If a piece of bread or another food is impure, it's tame. Let's say a dead a dead mole or a dead weasel, a dead mouse fell on it, so it becomes impure. We learned this at length when we were learning Rebchanina's Gana Koyanim and Meseches Psachim, which now they're learning in the Shurim of Daf Yoimi, one of the hardest sections in Gemara, the end of the first period of Meseches Psachim, all the halach, many of the laws of Tumah, entire purity and impurity. So if the Eichel becomes Tameh, it can impart Tumah to others, but it has to be the size of a kibetza. It has to be the size of an egg, the volume of an egg. The Gemara learns it out. What if you have the meat of an animal and it's less than a kibetza? It's less. But together with the hide, together with the skin, it makes up that volume. It's fine. It's, it's, it, 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 it imparts tumma. And the reason is 
because the hide combines to the meat. That's what the Mishnah says in, in Chulun. And the Mishnah says, you know what else could combine? The hooves can combine, and the horns can combine. But Rashi and Toysavis both say over there, and the Rambam brings it la'alacha, in Hilchas Tumas Eichlam Perek Dalet, that there's two parts of the horns. There is the part of the horn that's very soft, because it's connected to the roots. In fact, if you cut it over there, it will, it will be bleeding. But then there's the higher part of the horns, the majority of the horns, that are not really connected in any way to the meat, and that, of course, cannot combine with the meat. So when we say the hooves, the hooves, you have the entire hooves, and the hide, the entire hide. When it comes to the horns, they're very different than the skin. So what do we see, the Rebbe says? That the skin is considered much more, even though the skin is not the animal itself. It's the hide, it's the epidermis, it's the covering of the animal. But nonetheless, it's closer it's more pnimiyazdik, it's closely, more halachically, it's more associated with the animal even than the horns. So he says that the relationship of the karnayim to the main aspect of the shayr is less than the ayr, less than the ayr. Because it's only the part and the root, the root of the karnayim where it would bleed if you cut it, not the top that if you cut it there's no blood. The Greeks told the Jews, we want you to ride on the horn of an ox. Right on the horn of an ox. This was a metaphor. The Chazal here, spiritually speaking, are conveying a profound metaphor of what the Yavanim were saying. The Yavanim was saying is, go to Chitzanias, go to the horns. Start receiving your energy from the external facade of God, not from the inner core. Neshama Sisral, the Neshama of the Jew, is essentially rooted in the intimate primius of Hashem. We say in Bereshis, he blew into Adam's nostrils a soul of life, Vayipach. The whole creation is described as God's speech. The Neshama is described as God blowing, inhaling. What's the difference? So the Zoyar says, Somebody who blows, blows from the innards. When I speak, the energy that's being conveyed, is a more, that's being expressed is more external. And that's why a person can go on talking for a long, long time. Sometimes to the dismay of the listeners. Right? An MC once stood up and he introduced somebody and he says, the following speaker doesn't need an introduction, he needs an ending. Can speak and speak and speak and speak. Look who's talking, right? What about blowing? You ever tried blowing? Blow. You blow the shayfer. How long can the tkiya be? Even a tkiya gdayla. At some point, you're going to get exhausted because the exertion of blowing is far more than talking. So the zayah says, "Man de nafach nafach." It's coming from your insides. It's like a person when a person is screaming, for example. It's not like talking, right? It takes up much more energy. A person is blowing, it's from like your inside, your inner chiyos. This is, halacha says, you blow shavat until the blood rushes to the brain, the face of the baltekeya becomes red. So blowing comes from the pnimis. What does it mean Hashem blew in on Neshama into Adam? It means that He gave Adam his pnimis. The Neshama is sensitive not to the chitzonius of Elikos, to the pnimis of Elikos. The whole world is Elikos. The whole world is godly energy. Bidvar Hashem Shamayim Nasu. 
The DNA of the universe is divine energy. And the most fascinating thing is that Judaism always taught that the world is made up of God's words. Only, literally only, in the last 60, 70 years, and since the 1950s, did secret science come to describe all living organisms as basically a sequence of letters. Because the genome, the DNA, is defined in science as letters. Obviously, the word letters is a euphemism. It doesn't exactly have the letters that we're used to it, but they define it as letters and a sequence of letters, like a program's code. And all of the living organisms are using the same dictionary. <laughs> it's one of the fascinating things of Korea, of the world, right? All living organisms are using exactly the same dictionary. Mamish. From the banana to the chimpanzee. From the human being to any bush. They're all using the same dictionary. Because really the world is divine DNA. It's the, the DNA that's organized by Hashem. And beneath the DNA that we can pick up with our instruments, you have the spiritual DNA of divine energy. But that's all called the dibur. So the Greeks were enthralled by science. They were enthralled by physics. Because it's incredible. It's amazing. They came to the Jew and they said, mitzvahs, yeah. But the externals. Torah, yeah, but the externals. Take the horns. The horns are very powerful. The horns are majestic. We'll soon see about the horns. But the horns are the chitzenius of the animal. They're the external element of the animal. They're not the pneumius. What was this, a marshal? This was a marshal in the Merkava. You have Pneshar, but they want the Karen. Neshama Yisrael are rooted in the pneumius. I want the pneumius. I want the truth. I want the inner core. I want the inner energy, not just the external psilus of it. In Tanya, Nigeri Sachu, the Balatanya says, the Pasuk says, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people at the end of his life in Parshish Azinu, that his nation is part of Hashem. So the Balatanya says, that Am Yisrael is a chelik of Yud Kevavke, that the Neshama is a reflection of Yud Kevavke, as he describes over there at length, that the very identity of the soul reflects Yud Kevavke, and therefore the Neshama Yisrael are not only rooted in the Karen, in the horn, which is more external to the animal, even more external than the hide, which is also external. But they're rooted in the Pneumius, and of course, when it comes to Torah and Mitzvahs, I'm not only Teufus, the logic of it, I'm looking for the Pneumius of it. And what's the Pneumius of it is that it's Ein Soif, it's course. It's not about that which I can wrap my brain around and reduce it to the experience of my own logical structures. And what does this mean in a relationship? Imagine somebody says, I want a relationship with you, but I only want a relationship with your horns. <laughs> I like your horns, I'll hold on to your horns, and I'll lead you by your horns, or you lead me by your horns. I want only with your horns. Maybe I'll give in for the oil for the skin, but the, your core, no, no, I'm not ready for that. So the Greeks say, stay with the chitzainis. And why do they want to stay with the chitzainis? Because when you stay with the chitzainis, you don't have to give up your ego. When you stay with the chitzainis, you don't have to have a real relationship. When you stay only on the outside, so then everything could be on your terms. You're not really opening yourself up to the truth of infinity. So therefore, what do you need that for? Your whole relationship with God is too dramatic, it's too exaggerated. Yes, because Anisham is a chelikilikami mal mamash. Vayipach ba'ap of nishmas chayim. It's not words, it's the, the, the inner breath. In other words, the soul senses the inner core of God. That's the neshama, that's what it is. It has no choice, that's what a neshama is. 
A neshama experiences the inner core of Hashem. That is a neshama. That is what it means to have a soul. You say you have a soul, that's what the soul is. The soul's antennas detect not just the external energy that's manifested within the science of creation, which in itself, by the way, is infinite. But even more than that, it senses What is the neshama? The neshama is divine breath. In other words, it's that which comes as explained in Tanya in the second chapter at length. He gives the metaphor of a child and a parent. A parent can create a lot of things, including art, which is beautiful. You have a parent who's an artist, a father, mother, an artist, and they create a beautiful piece of art. And it could sell maybe for $10 million. And maybe in 100 years for $50 million. But you can't compare that to the relationship with their child. This is a product of their talent, of their brilliance. The child coming from their DNA, from their genes, their chromosomes. And spiritually, the child is etzem ha'av. It's the core of the father and the mother. It's the core, it's the pneumius. Even though the child becomes separate, becomes a separate person. The neshama comes down to this world. It's within a body, but what is it? It's the core of a lukos. The Yavanim say, you're too dramatic about it. You're too, you're too intense. This relationship is too deep. Stick to the, stick to the horns. Stick to the karnayim. Of course, which one of the Jews is described as the horn of an ox? You remember? What does Yaakov Avinu tell Yosef on his deathbed? Which is always read right after Hanukkah. What does he tell Yosef? B'chor, and Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu. B'chor sheirei hadar loi v'karnei re'eim karnov. Bohem yinagach avsei aretz v'heim rivevoi sefrayim v'heim alfei menasheh. Yaakov and Moshe. Moshe compares Yosef to the shir, to the ox. And then he speaks about the horns. You see, Yosef is Antiochus. Yosef is Melech Yov. And they said, look at Yosef. He's the first one who rode on the horn of the ox. That he doesn't want this That's why he says, Don't be a chalik of it. Enjoy the world. Enjoy the world from a distance. Be a spectator. Jews said, you can't be a spectator, you're a player. Once you feel truth, you're a player. Imagine somebody gets married, say, I want a relationship with you, but only to your, with your external self. <laughs> don't, go, don't give me the intimacy. I'm not giving you my intimacy, you don't give me your intimacy. Okay? Once you sense what a relationship is, you can't go there. It's too diminished, it's too, it's too restricted. Once you hear the music, there's no going back. Once you taste your soul, what are you supposed to do? Make believe it's not there? Once you experience infinity, there's no going back. <laughs> As long as you don't experience infinity, you could remain stuck in your cocoon. Sometimes your whole life. I could be a good Jew, and I learn, and I do the mitzvahs, but I never touch the music of infinity. So I could remain there, and I'm comfortable. I can even become smug and judgmental and complacent. But once you touch the chilek, chilek Hashem beyond the horns. So the neshama, it picks up a different relationship. What is this in life? In a person's life, it's the same thing. We spoke, for example, in the relationship with a husband and a wife, or your relationship with any person who's close to you. So I only want to do what I can understand with my logic. What's happening? You're reducing the relationship to a very external place within yourself and the part of the other person as well. It's chitzainis to chitzainis. My externalities focusing on your externalities. 
It's like a relationship that is very superficial. You know, you have sometimes acquaintances and they don't know you, you don't know them. They judge you based on your superficial self, you judge them based on their superficial self, and that's where it remains. The problem is, when you're married to each other, it becomes very frustrating and depressing when you can't go a step deeper. So therefore, when somebody says, I only appreciate that which I can understand within you, and even if I'm going to be committing myself to that which I don't understand, but I have to ultimately understand the intelligence of it, the intellect of it, what are we doing? We're stripping ourselves from the ability to touch the other person's core, which is beyond Seichel. As explained in the previous year at length, we are depriving ourselves from that ability. We're limiting in a we're sitting in a very restricted place. In fact, many people create logical structures around everything in their life in order to protect themselves from the pulse of life. I don't want to touch the meat of life. I only want to touch the horns. I don't want to get dirty with the experience of life. It's maybe too painful for me. So therefore, I become super logical and rational as a protective space to be in. It's a very safe place because I believe that with rationality, I can control everything. I know what's coming. I know what I have to deal with. I understand everything. The only problem is, at some point, I'm not alive anymore. I'm not in, so to speak, I'm not in touch with the deeper elements of life. I'm not open to the mystery, to the infinity of life. I'm not open to the mystery and infinity of my spouse. I'm not open to the mystery and infinity of myself. I'm not open to the mystery and infinity of my children. I'm not open to the mystery and infinity of God and of the world. And that's the Yavani inside of me, the Greek inside of me, who wants control. They had the human being's brain as the zenith of existence. He was the crown the crowning reality of creation. There's nothing above me, and then I am in control. But really, what is it? It's chayshech. The Medjus says, v'chayshech is the Greeks. It's dark. You stay in the dark. You don't see the real light. They call themselves enlightened, but it's really the epitome of darkness, because the worst light is the light that makes believe. It gives you vision. As Helen Keller once said, the only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is not having vision. You hear about it? The only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is not having vision. And Helen Keller understood a thing or two about ice, about not having eyesight and having vision. She said once, I read she wrote that somebody was, went, went on a hike in the forest. They went on a hike and they came back to her. So Helen Keller asks this person, this acquaintance or this friend, knew, how was it? They said, eh, it was fine. They said, was it exciting? It was boring. Did you see or hear anything? They said, no. Helen Keller said, you went on a hike in the forest and you didn't see and hear anything? <laughs> you didn't see and hear anything? How dead can you be? So this is the kisful lechem al keren hashar she'en lechem chelik It's a relationship only with the chitzayinis, not with the pnimiyas. It's my brain needs to wrap itself around everything and therefore I can't get everything. I can't even begin to get to the core of your reality. And you see it so much in relationships. When I cannot make space for your infinity, and you cannot make space for my infinity. And the reason I can't do it for you is because I can't do it for myself. I can't create space for it. The moment you can create space for that which you don't understand in a genuine way, you open yourself up to a deeper dimension in relationships. This sentence, I think, captures one of the main truths being conveyed here. Let's learn for another five minutes. What does this mean? What is the explanation of this? The way it applies to a person's life in terms of Yiddishkeit. 
now we understand the whole war of the Jews against the Yavonim. The war of the Jews against the Yavonim was defined by two words, Mesiris Nefesh. We say it in Alanism. You have delivered the many in the hands of the few and the strong in the hands of the weak. In other words, this was not a conventional battle between two sides that were proportionally balanced and equal and one side won. No. The entire initiative of the Hashmanoyim to defeat the Syrian Greek army was super rational. It was based on a conviction and a faith and a resilience that transcended the statistics that logic demands. In other words, if you go statistically, you say, this is a battle that you cannot win. Stop it. Quit. Quit while you're ahead. Surrender. The Chashmanayim did not. And that was the uniqueness of Chanan. The Greeks were strong, they were weak. The Greeks were many. You had maybe 50,000 troops. First a few dozen, and then a few hundred, at most, maybe a few thousand Jews. So imagine a person is wrestling, and you're wrestling, it's a ratio of 1 to 50. It's impossible to win. We once spoke about Nisecha, Nifloi Secha, Yeshuai Secha, the different stages of Hanukkah. Shuais, Nisim, Nifloyus. This was a Ness. This was a miracle. But the Ness begins in their attitude. Their whole avoid, he says, was one based on Mesidus Nefesh. What does Mesidus Nefesh mean? Literally, Mesidus Nefesh means to give your soul. Here we're explaining Mesidus Nefesh in its truest sense. Mesidus Nefesh means to dedicate your soul. In other words, that the relationship is one in which I don't live only in my limited brain. In which I can go above my brains. I can go above my logic. In other words, I can open myself up to my own infinity, which is rooted in God's infinity. Why was this necessary? Because this was the only thing that will allow them to defeat the Yavonim. In other words, what does it mean that the Jews fought against the Yavonim? It means that they found within themselves a whole different experience of life and of Judaism. The exact opposite of what the Yavonim taught. The Yavonim taught, the Yavanim didn't mind a Judaism that is rooted in logic and intellect in which my brain can wrap itself around everything and I can understand it. That they didn't mind. What bothered them was the Avaydah Shalom That they couldn't deal with. Torah, I'm good. Mitzvahs, I'm fine. I told you, we're going to have in university a whole divinity. It's going to be called the Jewish Divinity Department. And they'll learn everything in Torah. <laughs> and they'll do the mitzvahs too. Why not? It's cultural. It's interesting stuff, and some are good, some are logical. What bothered them was the Torah secha, David It was on this that the Jews fought. What did they do? They went to the other extreme. The Yavanim said, even the chukim. You should do because there is rationality to them. Some of the chukim have glimpses of rationality. Or as we said earlier, even if I don't understand today, I'll understand tomorrow. Or I can understand that there are certain premises that I have to accept in order to be able to work within a logical structure. They wanted that even the chukim 
should be justified by my own intellect. What was the war against the Yavanim? Listen to this. That even the Mishpatim, even the part of Yiddishkeit that is absolutely logical, loy sirtzach, loy signev, they should perform not only because my logic says that it makes sense, they should perform it because it's the Ratzin Hashem that's beyond sech. So you see, from one side it went to the other side. They wanted that even the chukim, even that which speaks about Ratzin, should also be minimized and reduced to the structures, to the limited structures of my brain. So what did the Jews do? They did the exact opposite. Even the mishpatim, even those mitzvahs that are logical, their focus was committing yourself to them, performing them, not because of the logic of it. Recognizing that the logic is only a facade, even though it makes a lot of sense. All the mitzvahs that are very rational mitzvahs that many societies would develop on their own. Mitzvah sichlius, rational, rational mitzvahs that our own healthy minds would conceive of. Even those mitzvahs they did with the passion and with the conviction and with the awareness that this is the pure, intimate, infinite will of God. In other words, even those mitzvahs that are so heavily garbed in the facade of logic, they broke through the facade and they touched the infinity of the mitzvahs. They were always in a relationship with infinity. And that's what Mesir Snefesh means. I could live in a place of my irrational brain. Everything has to be understood and structured and defined by my logic and my structures, which is usually an escape from the reality of life. We usually do it when there's pain because we want to be in control. And I can live in that space and then I have a lot of stress and anxiety from things in life that I can't control and all the curveballs that come my way that I'm not ready for because my brain has not been adjusted to it. So what I do is I deny it. Denial, I get angry, I start bargaining. And it's all based on the fact that I got to fit it into some structure. That's one way of living. That's the Yavanim shita. And even my Yiddishkeit becomes that way. Everything is, there's Torah, there's mitzvahs. I do Shabbos, and I can even do the Paraduma. And I can also have a Milchakem Fleshika sides of the kitchen. I'm, I'm good. I'm a good Jew. But the Greek still lives inside of me. I am a victim to the superficiality of Hellenistic culture in the sense that I am not ready to open myself up to the infinity of a relationship, because I don't believe in my own infinity. What is Mesiris Nefesh? Mesiris Nefesh is the courage every day to transcend the limits of my brain. Not because the brain is bad. It's not bad. We love the brain, and we love thoughts, and we love ideas, and we love structures. Even this mime is very, very structured. <laughs> but it's a conduit for infinity. Don't get stuck there. The brain has to be used. Very often you have to be rational. You're making a business decision, be rational. And you're learning a piece of gemara, you have to use your brain to understand it. And even to understand this, we're using our brain to understand it. But use it as a conduit when rationality needs to play a major role. If somebody's stuck in delusions or somebody's stuck in a cult or somebody feels that Judaism is completely unintelligent, you have to use the rational elements, of course. In a relationship, there's a lot that you have to use your rationality for. You're planning a trip together, or you want to buy a house, or you want to move somewhere, or you're choosing a vacation. We use our seichel. But don't limit your life there. It's a conduit. It's a facilitator. You don't say, but our relationship is only based on what we can understand. How limited, how, how pathetic, how pitiful. Mr. Nefesh means... I open myself up to infinity. In other words, I give over my nefesh, my soul. My soul is my core I, I, I put into the relationship. I'm not limiting the relationship to my own orbit, which is small and very limited. 
Because the truth is, my orbit is not limited. My orbit is infinite. So this was the war of the Jews against the Yavanim. It didn't start on the military battlefield. It started in the soul. The Yavanim said, even Chukim should not be Ritzaynecha. It should be based on Seichel. So the Jews said, and even Mishpatim will be Ritzaynecha. As my father-in-law, the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayat explains, He explained that even the mitzvahs of Mishpatim, one should observe like Chukim, even the comprehensible mitzvahs that I do understand, should have the same purity like the mitzvah of a Chuk. It should have the same intensity of the relationship, even though I understand it. Why? Because I'm not getting stuck in the understanding element. I managed to hold on to the connection with you and with the core of you, which is beyond logic. And conversely, conversely, even the chukim should be performed with the same pleasure and the same delight and the same geschmack, the same flavor, like mitzvahs that are rational. So it's both ways. In other words, all the mitzvahs become one. Even the mitzvahs of mishpatim. I do. With the experience of chukim, in other words, with a connection to the pure intimacy of God beyond logic. And conversely, so the mishpatim become like chukim, and the chukim become like the mishpatim. Even the chukim, which you would say, are more, uh, what's the word, more fresh burdensome. Because I don't really get it, I don't really understand what's the point, who needs it. I have the same geschmack in chukim like I have in mishpatim. Just like a mitzvah that I find amazing or beautiful or enriching. And I would never give it up because it's geschmack. Some people don't have such mitzvahs, but many people have mitzvahs that they really find themselves there. So you would say, mishpatim are geschmack, but chukim, you don't find yourself there. It's like, okay, you do it. You do it. You got to do it. You're afraid not to do it. You want reward. You were educated this way. You just do it. Then again, you're missing the point. The mishpatim you do like the chukim, and the chukim you do with the same gishmak like the mishpatim. What's the gishmak? The gishmak is the relationship of it. And then the person has the ability that the rational soul can communicate this even to the animal soul, that she's also in, engaged in it. She also enjoys the chukim. It's explained that in every mitzvah, there are two meditations, there are two kavanas that accompany the mitzvah. One is the kavana pratis, the individual intentions and meditations that exist in each mitzvah as an individual mitzvah based on the theme of that mitzvah. Every mitzvah has its unique message, its unique kavana, the unique purpose of this mitzvah and what it's trying to accomplish in yourself and in the world. But then there is a general meditation, which is generic for all the mitzvahs. What is that? The relationship with Hashem's essence. And that's the bracha we see both in the blessing before every mitzvah. 
I'm about to put on tefillin. What do I say? Baruch Hashem Lekenem Alechaylam Shakedeshanu Mitzvayse Vitzivanu Lahniach Tefillin. The last two words are unique to tefillin. Sometimes it's Lahniach Tefillin. Sometimes it's Lahad Lekner Shalchanaka. Sometimes it's Afrashes Chalo Lahad Lekner Shabbos Kodesh. Sometimes it's Mitzvah Tzitzis or Alachilas Matzah or Lishmaya Kol Shoifer or Mikra Megillah. But that's the end of the blessing. What about the introductory words? Baruch Hashem Lekenem Alechaylam Shakedeshanu Mitzvayse Vitzivanu. He sanctified us, or he betrothed us through his mitzvahs, and he commanded us. And then we discuss what? That preparation is equal and uniform for all the mitzvahs. That what? What am I doing? I'm gonna go, I'm now engaging in something. Something that the divine creator instructed us. He instructed me, he commanded me. This is something that includes all mitzvahs. Mishpatim. Edes, Chukim, the rational ones, the super rational ones, even the most rational ones. I'm engaged here in the fulfillment of Hashem's Ratzin. This is what He wants. This is what He told me to do. This is the husband and the wife sharing with other things. This is what I want. This is who I am. <laughs> you may understand it. You may not understand it. Even that which you understand is only a garb. And even that which I understand is only a garb. Even the person themselves who understands their will, it's not as deep as the will itself. It's the garb of the will. That's the kavana klolis in every mitzvah. That's the concept called kabbalah sol. What's kabbalah sol? Kabbalah sol means, I'm in a relationship with you. I'm in a relationship with your essence. How is that expressed? Today it's expressed in one way. Tomorrow it may be expressed in the opposite way. Today it's mishpatim. Tomorrow it's edas. The next day it's chukim. It's not defined by the nature of the mitzvah. It's defined by the essence of the relationship, which will be manifested in many different mitzvahs. Some I'll understand with my mind, and some I'll understand less with my mind. Some I'll understand a little bit. Some I won't understand today. Some I won't understand. That's fine. And then there is the individual kavana of every mitzvah, the kavana pratis. So when we make a bracha, we prepare and we engage in this awareness. This is a mindful, an act of mindfulness, really tuning in to what I am about to do. And that gives it a whole different flavor, a whole different geschmack. Because you're being opened up to this type of relationship. The Balatanya says in Perik Chafhei, the Tanya explains that Moshe Rabbeinu told the Jews who were going into Eretz Yisrael to read Shema twice a day. The Psukim Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad, which he tells them to read at night and in the morning, B'Shach B'Chov Kumecha. And whoever didn't say Shema today yet, and you didn't daven yet, make sure to say Shema before the time is up. So he said to do it twice a day. Who is he saying it to? To the generation that's going into Eretz because he says this in Sefer Dvarim at the end of the 40 years, right before he passed away, the last few weeks. And what is the beginning of Kriya Shema? To accept upon you the kingdom of heaven with Mesiris Nefesh, with all your soul. Asks the Balatanya, Moshe Rabbeinu promised them. At that point, God will instill fear in all your enemies so that the conquest will be smooth and easy. So what, are they, what does he have to tell them about Mesir's Nefesh? Bechol nafshecha. They have to be ready for self-sacrifice. They didn't need self-sacrifice. He told them, he promised them over there in Parshas Akif, right there, the next Parsha, that your fear and your dread, God will inculcate within all of the enemies and therefore nobody's going to stand up. Nobody's going to stand up before you. So what do you need self-sacrifice? It's an easy conquest. 
That's what Moshe Rabbeinu tells them right after that. So why twice a day do I have to commit myself to sacrifice my soul for you? Why? If you're in a time of war, in a time of conflict, you make a vow, I'm going to give my soul. But it's, it's going to be peaceful. It's very peaceful. So the Balatanya says, he says something very, very powerful, and this is the point. Even in peaceful days, you have to remember the Nekud of Messiris Nefesh. In other words, life has so many challenges, and life has so many temptations, and life has so much brokenness, that a person always has to remember, and I have to do this every single day, once in the morning and once in the evening. I have to remember where my, so, my deepest commitment lies, what really matters to me, what are my innermost values. You'll say, but it's peaceful times. But even in peaceful times, there are the enemies within there is the toxicity within. There's the trauma within. And there are all the temptations and challenges from a world around me. What allows a person to be able to remain connected to the deepest forms of their relation, to the deepest relationships that they have with themselves and with their loved ones and with Hashem? It's remembering this Mesiris Nefesh. Never ever define the relationship only in an external fashion and reduce it to your brains, but remember you're Bechol Nafshecha. Remember that you are a piece of infinity. And remember that your soul is rooted there. That's who you really are. That's your Pnimius. Your Chelek Eleka Mimal Mamash. Your relationship with God is not just a brainy one. Your relationship with God is at your core. It's at your essence. It's at your soul. And therefore, don't go so you don't understand everything. Don't be a victim of your brain. Again, we love brains. I don't want that people should misunderstand this. Somebody wrote to me a whole email. We're an intellectual people. I'm Chachem Venovin. You think that Rebbe didn't know that we're intellectual people? <laughs> I'm Chachem Venovin. Of course we're an intellectual people. But what makes us such an intellectual people that we're not stuck in the trappings of intellect? Because when you're stuck in the trappings of intellect, you're not so intellectual anymore. Ultimately, you lose your relationships. You don't have to be a victim of your limited brain. So I don't understand. Your relationship is deeper. That's what Messiris Nefesh means. Messiris Nefesh, in a very practical way, even in the most peaceful times, is the concept of trust. I don't have to control the relationship. The relationship is safe. You're seeing, you're soothed, you're secure in the relationship. You're good. You don't have to define it intellectually. You're good. What, what, what does it mean that a, a, your child has a good relationship with you? You have a good relationship with your spouse. What does it mean? It means that if somebody asks you, somebody you really love, somebody who loves you asks you, how are you feeling? You could just say how you're feeling, even if it doesn't make sense, and they make space for it. They don't need you to say, well, I'm not feeling well. I'm not, I'm, I'm not in a good mood. Why? I don't know. Oh, so stop it. <laughs> you don't do that. I can make space for all parts of you. In other words, this relationship can be trusted. So you say, I don't understand what's happening. This is happening. That's happening. And you feel God has abandoned you. The relationship is safe. It's intact. You don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to feel that if you don't understand something, it means you're not being protected. What does David HaMelech say? Even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid because you're with me. I'm not afraid. This relationship is good. It's safe. It's wholesome. Mesiris Nefesh means you could surrender your soul. You don't have to be in control. I love being in control because I'm afraid if I'm in control, then I own the relationship. He says it's bigger than that. Moshe Rabbeinu says, you could surrender your soul. You could surrender your soul because it will not fall into the abyss. 
it will fall into the divine embrace. So therefore, you don't have to be afraid that you're going to lose everything. So you say, but I don't understand this. But the relationship is more powerful than the understanding. You create space for your loved ones, even in those aspects that you don't understand. They create that space for you. Same is true in our relationship with life and our relationship with Hashem. Our relationship is even in the mystery, so I don't understand. So God is inviting me into a relationship where I don't understand Him and where I can open myself up to those places where I don't understand myself. That's what the idea is. I could, I, could, I could surrender my soul. I could be comfortable in surrendering it. I don't have to hold on to it. I don't have to hold on to it tight. I don't have to define it. I don't have to control it. I don't have to sculpture it and make sure it's experiencing certain parts of life. I could surrender it to the infinite mystery of life. That's the melchama of the Jews against the Yavanim. <laughs> they say, And the Jew says the exact opposite. Even the logical Torah is Torah And even the logical mitzvah is Because ultimately the Mishpatim and the Chukim become one. This concludes if Gimel of the Maimer. Be'ezer Hashem tomorrow, Thursday morning, 7.30 a.m., Erev Chanukah will complete this Maimer for Chanukah v'al Hanissim Tavshin Chavtes. So they say, right on the horn of the ox, Keren Hashar, they wanted Jews to stay connected to the Keren Hashar. And they blame Yosef. They say Yosef was the first person. Of course, they don't understand that by Yosef it was the exact opposite. Yosef didn't start with the horns. Yosef started with the Pneumius, and he brought it into the Chitzainius. It's very different. Yosef was not a confused soul. Yosef was an integrated and wholesome soul. Yosef was not afraid of his emotions. Yosef was somebody who integrated the diversity and saw it all as an expression of oneness. So the exercise today is, what's the exercise today? The exercise today is if I can have Mesiris Nefesh. What does Mesiris Nefesh mean? Baruch Hashem, we're living in the United States of America in 2020, not like the Jews in the times of the Yuvonim, we're going to light Hanukkah candles, Be'ezer Hashem, in peace and tranquility, even though we have our challenges, and we have our dangers, and we have our anti-Semites roaming the world quite with a lot of chutzpah, but still you can't compare the blessings that the Jewish people have today to the challenges of previous generations in terms of persecution, even though we have seen recently, in recent years, an uprise in anti-Semitism, which is horrific and scary. But nonetheless, we were given the opportunity in our generation to practice Yiddishkeit in freedom and liberty in ways that were unimagined in previous generations. But Mesiris Nefesh doesn't only mean I give my soul that I'm ready to die. Sometimes living with Mesiris Nefesh can be also difficult, can also be challenging. It's a different type of challenge. The exercise is, can I really surrender my soul today to infinity, to the infinite embrace of Hashem. Do I have to hold on to it? Do I have to control it? Or can I allow my soul to be surrendered to the infinite love and embrace of God? That I don't have to understand everything. I don't have to reduce it to my intellectual capacity. But I can really allow myself to be open to the divine mystery of life and trust in the relationship Trust that I give over my soul to Hashem. He won't abuse it. He'll embrace it. He'll caress it. And I'll have alignment with who I really am. <laughs> so that's our exercise for today, my dear friends. And uh, for tonight. And it's a good exercise every day. As he says, that's why we say Shema twice a day. What's Shema? Shema is this moment. Shema I love you with all my soul. What does that mean? 
There were times in history, it meant that Jews had to make the ultimate choice. And it's unbelievable what they did. Unbelievable. That's why we're all here. But in our times, what it means for each and every one of us is, I could be sitting in the comforts of my own home, or the comforts of my own office, or the comforts of my own backyard. When I say Krishna, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekein Hashem Echad, I want to really be able to open myself up and surrender everything within me, including my expectations and my traumas and my fears and my insecurities and my need to survive and control to the absolute infinite love that's available in the depths of life and in the depths of the relationships, of relationships. I wish you all, my dear brothers and sisters, a beautiful, uplifting, inspiring, wholesome, integrated day. See you tomorrow, 7.30 a.m. Let me take a question or two. How does one really do this? How does one really engage in this act? How do you uh, get to this place? So that's why he says, that's the concept of Kriyashma. In other words, it starts with a firm decision and resolution that no matter what my day brings, I will live with the perspective of my infinity and Hashem's infinity. And then all can change. I think, so very often it's really a decision. It's a commitment. It's a, it's an inner, you discover that value in you and that conviction in you that I know a lot of things can happen today. Things that I expect and things that I can't expect, things that I understand and things that I can't understand. Things that maybe shatter so many of my expectations and dreams. But I'm going to live with the perspective of my infinity. I'm not going to reduce life to my expectations. And I'm going to live from the perspective of Hashem's infinity. And then, actually, you'll have a beautiful day. (laughs) Because you'll see it in a different light. You'll see it in a different perspective. Now, there is often pain that you have to accept here because the transition from the Yavani model to the divine model is a painful transition. And that's where I have to release it with tears. I have to I have to acknowledge what we call grief. I have to acknowledge that I'm transitioning. And this is so important always. I always emphasize this, especially recently. The compassion that's necessary when you make transitions. And you have to have that. It's called Midas Arachamim. Do not step into this with a place of judgment and cruelty to yourself. You have to step into this with a space of compassion. Which means the fact that I may not be ready for it is tough. It's difficult. The Maimer is challenging us to make a paradigm shift that's painful. If my personal trainer comes and says, I really want you to lift in ways that you never lifted or run in ways that you never ran or exert yourself in ways that you never exerted yourself, or my chiropractor is ready to really crack that back in ways that it was never cracked before in order to allow the chios to flow down from the brain all the way down the spine. You see the Baron, I'm a good student. I heard it once and I got it. The Tachi is to flow down, right? That crack, and you know, you, you become uptight. And what does the chiropractor tell you? Relax, relax, relax. No, I can't relax. <laughs> you have to have compassion. You have to say, relax, 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 you idiot. That's what you relax, you. No, no, no. It's compassion, compassion. You've been living, I've been living in the Greek model, in the Yavani model. I'm going away from it but it has to be done with sensitivity to appreciate the contrast. And there's a pain there, there's a pain there, there's a fear there. That's why Moshe Ben Asa tell the Jewish people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, God is going to be with you. They always want to run back to Egypt. Right? Stockholm Syndrome. 
battered woman syndrome. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to the familiar place where I know the misery much better than going into the unknown. So there's a very important uh, need to acknowledge that drama, to acknowledge the difficulty of that transition. I know that there's a lot of questions I didn't, uh, I didn't do yet, but we'll get to it, Bezer Hashem. Tomorrow morning we're going to learn 7.30 a.m., and I hope, Bezer Hashem, that we'll be able to finish the Mimer, at least finish it on one level. Everybody, have a beautiful, beautiful and atzlocha dekadei, bracha v'atzlocha, ad bli dai. By the way, yesterday's woman's class was based on this mimer. I took the mimer and I tried to develop it. So if you want to understand it a little more, you could listen to yesterday's woman's class on the yeshiva.net, which is titled, Stop Trying to Understand Your Life. I wrote that title yesterday at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning because I wasn't understanding anything. Look, somebody asks a question. Is this connected to Bitochen? Is this connected to Bitochen? I think it's very much connected to Bitochen. What is Bitochen? Bitochen means trust, Betach. Bitochen is creating a space of trust that I am a creator, I'm not a victim. Right? We say, Tzamech Tzedek said, Tracht gut sein gut. Think good and it will be good. In other words, I'm not just a victim of reality. I'm an active partner in reality. And that's the trust. The trust is, I'm not this Nebuch case who's being run by all these random or divine forces and I'm just being schlepped by the thunderstorms and by the tsunamis of life and by the hurricanes and I could just sit and, you know, surrender. Betochen is much deeper than surrender. There's surrender that comes from weakness. There's surrender that comes from strength. It's recognizing that you are divine. You are a partner with Hashem. You are an aspect of infinity. So you tell Hashem, let's go with this together. I'm surrendering my need to be limited, and I'm going into your infinity, and let's go together and plow through, plow through life with grandeur, courage, faith, and most importantly, joy. Simcha. Remember, my dear friends, today, whoever you meet, instead of looking to them as a source for you to receive love, you become a source of love. You become an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing to all the people you meet. And I congratulate all ambassadors in training. I also congratulate all junior ambassadors. For those who already graduated training and already into junior ambassadors, even though this we never graduate... Everybody have a beautiful day. Hatzlach chazak. What's the difference? What's the difference between uh, connecting to an animal? An animal is not a person. An animal is not a person, but people sometimes have deep, you know, kelev is kulei lev, right? Man's best friend. But you don't need to have a connection to it. It's a different type, of course. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.